Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. On March 14, 2017, the MacArthur Memorial hosted Bill Lasher, a journalist whose work has appeared in The Guardian, Pacific Standard, Atlas Obscura, Gizmodo, Portland Monthly, and elsewhere. He is also the author of Eve of a Hundred Midnights, the story of Mel and Annalie Jacoby, married journalists who fled the Philippines as it fell to the Japanese in 1942. Um... Thank you to the MacArthur Memorial for having me. It's really an honor to be here. This is a really fitting place to be right now, particularly given this 75th anniversary of the start of the U.S. involvement in World War II, or the U.S. direct involvement in World War II. And that last point is something that I find very crucial given Melville Jacoby, who not really a household name, but for a brief time, 75 years ago, was a household name. He was a Life Magazine reporter uh, on Bataan and in Corre- or on Corregidor and in Bataan. He was uh, living on uh, living on Corregidor. So anyway, um, 75 years ago, right about now, a cargo ship called the Doña Nati was just leaving the Philippines, entering the Pacific, hopefully to reach Australia. Uh, he had just left Cebu right after a cruiser arrived. Uh, a Japanese cruiser was or just before a cruiser arrives, was going to shell the island. And uh, on that ship were a number of civilians, including an AP reporter named Clark Lee and Mel and Annalie Jacoby. Uh, Mel was a time and life photographer and reporter and writer. Uh, Annalie was a MGM script writer turned uh, Liberty Magazine contributor and later a contributor to Time. And while that boat was at sea... Mel was uh, picking up a Corona 4 typewriter, sitting down to write a book. Uh, he'd picked up this typewriter on Cebu during a brief interlude there. And um, it's not the typewriter in this photo. But um, fast forward to the mid-2000s, and my grandmother, her name is uh, Peggy Darling, she was moving, and she was kind of a pack rat. She had a lot of stuff, a lot of family history. One of the things she had was this old brown weathered old box, and she had held it aside for me. I wasn't living at home. I was just in the middle of just starting my career as a journalist, but really kind of ending a very aimless time in my life. And the next Christmas came, and my grandmother gave me this box, and she said, I want you to have this. It used to belong to my cousin. And I opened up the box, and inside was this gold leaf, black, Corona 4 portable typewriter. And she tells me, this belonged to my cousin, the war correspondent. And I said to her, your cousin, the war correspondent, I didn't know you had a cousin who was a war correspondent. And this moment unveiled just this magnificent journey that I've spent the last 10 years on, 12 years, learning about Melville Jacoby, who you're going to see here, as well as Anna Lee Jacoby. Uh, That's them on their wedding day in Manila on November 24th, 1941, of course, about two weeks before Pearl Harbor. The pictures you're going to see here, I've, because of this audience, I brought forth some of the ones that are from the Philippines and uh, the sort of end of their story. 
but you're gonna, it's going to go backwards after a few of these and start at the beginning of Mel's life and just kind of cycle through as I read a little bit from this book. Um, so a little bit of background. Mel was a Stanford University student when he decided to go to China as an exchange student. He studied at a school called Lingnan University. And at Lingnan, um, he lived with some, other, with some Chinese students and then also some other American students were studying abroad there. And he was there from 1936 to 1937. So if you know your uh, Chinese history and uh, World War II history, that's 1937 was when the war between Japan and China got started, although, of course, China has recently declared 1931 and some of the attacks on uh, Shanghai as, as some of the earlier and the invasion of Manchuria as the official start of the war. But July 7, 1937, when Mel was there as an exchange student, is sort of the more official start date of that war. So being there when that happened really generated a lot of interest in world affairs and particularly in China and Asia in Melville Jacoby's life. So after he came home from China, all he wanted to do was go back. And he did as a journalist, um, first as a freelancer uh, in Shanghai and very quickly thereafter in Chongqing, which was the wartime capital uh, of China. And then he ended up in what was then French Indochina, now known as uh, Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, where he uh, was briefly arrested by the Japanese and really got on the, on the bad side of, of uh, Japan. Uh, he came back to the States one more time and, bought and met Annalee, who uh, was at the time working as an MGM screenwriter. Uh, they knew each other a little bit from school. She'd gone to Stanford as well. She had been the first female managing editor of the uh, Stanford Daily. Um, but what really drew them together was a sort of shared interest in China and concern over the the war in the Pacific. Um, Mel arranged for Annalee to find work in China, and that would allow her to travel over there and work first as a uh, publicist for the United China Relief Agency, and then as a speechwriter for Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Um, so they were working in Chongqing, uh, covering, Mel was covering the war, writing first as a freelancer, then as a reporter for Time Magazine. Annalee was working for United China Relief. Uh, and as soon as she arrived, they fell in love, Mel proposed, but then he got transferred to Manila. She stayed behind to work. Pearl Harbor uh, happened just briefly. It was, you know, the, the preparations for the war were, were really evident. This is the fall of 1941. Um, but she made it on again on, on November 24th, 1941. Uh, Mel took her right to the wedding chapel. They got married, uh, had a very brief honeymoon on Lake Tal, and uh, with a couple pandas, actually. Um, uh, and then went right to work covering first the run-up to war, and then the war. Uh, so the moment of the book I'm going to read to you is December 31st, 1941. The U.S. has been in the war now for three and a half weeks or so. Uh, as probably many of you know, the Japanese were a day outside of Manila. Uh, MacArthur has already withdrawn to Corregidor. Uh, the Open City Declaration had been made, and U.S. forces were destroying anything of value in Manila. At the same time, there are 32 journalists gathered in the Bayview Hotel, right on uh, what's now Rojas Boulevard, what was then Dewey Boulevard, uh, deciding whether they want to run or stay behind and risk the possibility of arrest by the Japanese, but maybe the fact, the possibility they're hoping at this point that they might be treated fairly and humanely. Um, Mel, because of the work he'd done previously, decides he has to flee, as does Annalee and Clark Lee. Two of their friends, Carl and Shelley Midens, the famous Life Magazine researcher combo, and uh, decide they're going to stay behind. They think it's too risky to run. 
Uh, Mel and Annalee really wanted to convince them. They were the best man and matron of honor at their wedding, but they can't convince them to go. Um, you can hear a couple names. You can hear of a ship called La Florecita. That's the uh, last tug left in Manila Bay. Uh, Chet Judah and William Hastings are the captains of this ship. And uh, I don't think anything else will be unfamiliar to you because I get an impression that you guys know a little bit more about this subject than other people do. So I'm going to read this segment, and then right after that, I'm going to read a, another short segment that I don't usually read, uh, but I think is important given this audience. While Clark was gone, Mel and Annalie made their own preparations. As early as Christmas Day, the Jacobis had packed a knapsack to be ready if they had to make a quick departure. There was room in it only for a camera and some plain, sturdy outfits. Preparing the bag was heartbreaking. They had to leave behind their lavish wedding gifts and tributes from Madame Chang, her sisters, and other Chinese elites, as well as from dear friends, bamboo and silver vases, embroidered satin blankets. All of it was priceless, yet they couldn't spare even an inch of space. They might be living out of their bag for months, if not years to come, so each ounce was precious. While they waited to hear from the crew of La Florecita, Mel and Annalie finished packing their bag. With their, de with their destination uncertain, they filled unused space with canned food and a couple more pieces of clothing. Besides most of Mel's photography equipment, they also abandoned hundreds of dollars they had deposited in a manila bank, much of which family had given them as wedding gifts. Then there were the notes, 600 typewritten pages worth. Mel's notes were a voluminous record of three years of reporting. They traced his path and the wars through China to Southeast Asia, and finally, on to the apocalyptic scene unfolding outside his hotel room in Manila. They were proof, documentary evidence of everywhere Mel had been. Every detail he had recorded when he dissected China's political and economic climate, every analysis of military strategy he'd prepared, all the sources he'd met, even all the intimate confidential reflections on the U.S. and Filipino preparedness for war that he'd gleaned in the weeks preceding Pearl Harbor. Much of his documentation underscored how woefully unready the American forces were for battle in the Philippines. The notes had to go. Mel and Annalie went to their hotel room's tiny bathroom. Its curtained window cast a greenish light on the couple as they tried to burn their notes in the toilet and sink. The room filled with smoke. One floor below, Carl and Shelley Midens were doing the same. The rumors about approaching Japanese troops were becoming more urgent. The latest had the enemy just two hours away in the town where Mel and Annalie had celebrated their brief honeymoon just a month earlier. Mel went down to Carl's room. After they continued to struggle with flushing in her notes, they decided to try the hotel room's furnace. Another journalist in Manila, Royal Arch Gunnison, later wrote that, he, that this might have been a dangerous decision. Anyone seen burning documents just before an occupation might be suspected of being a spy destroying evidence. Nevertheless, uh, Carl and Mel decided to take that risk. Mel went upstairs, where he and Annalie stuffed their notes into a pillowcase. Then he raced back down to Carl's room, and together the two wordlessly ran to the basement. The door to the furnace room was locked. Mel started ramming the door with his shoulder. Finally, both he and Carl kicked at it. The door crashed open, echoing in the basement. They scrambled through a cluttered storeroom and found the growling furnace. Carl grabbed its door with his pillow to protect his hand from the heat. Without speaking, both men threw their notes into the flames. Most events in life don't sync up with calendars, but somehow Mel's life repeatedly returned to moments like this when history converged all too perfectly with his own doings. Now, 
Everything he and Carl had experienced was condensed into a space consisting of the six floors between their cramped, smoke-filled bathrooms and this hot basement, dark except for the furnace's glow. A meticulous note-taker throughout his life, Carl couldn't stomach watching months' worth of his notes burn. Mel had already started considering, one day, writing a book about China. And now, he watched everything he'd worked toward for most of his adult life go up in flames. Neither Mel nor Carl spoke. Not even after they made sure their notes were gone and each had returned to their wives and their rooms. It was as uncomfortable a position as any of the four had found themselves in. And neither the Jacobis nor the Midenses would verbalize why. For the rest of their lives, this moment would haunt them and cloud their recollection. Never would they be able to flush away the memory of what they had done. Barely two years had passed since Mel first met Carl. They'd sent shared an intimacy of the sort that usually only exists in foxholes and bedrooms. But that night, the basement of the Bayview felt more like a crime scene. Once back upstairs, Mel called Clark Lee and told him to get back to the Bayview in case Captains Hastings and Judah showed up. When Clark arrived, the trio once more tried to convince the Midenses to join the escape, but their friends continued to refuse. The argument intensified. Suddenly, as if punctuating the debate, a flash as bright as day lit the room. The windows shook tremendously. Great black columns of smoke roiled into the sky to the north. The departing American forces had just blown up the, central, the city's central gasoline, gasoline reserves across the Paseg River. Quote, Annalee supplied the adjectives, Clark wrote. Stupendous, terrific, colossal, terrifying, magnificent, overwhelming, she gasped. All the adjectives were important. She, uh, she wrote for the Andy Hardy movie series, so that was a typical way of writing. Aware that this was likely to be the last night they were together for some time, the reporters decided that a farewell toast was in order. Unfortunately, they couldn't find any booze. Annalee and Shelley had poured all their liquor out, fearful of rumors about how, quote, berserk Japanese soldiers might get if they got a hold of it. Without a drink to share, the Jacobis simply, simply sat with their colleagues in their darkened hotel room and watched Manila go up in flames. There were fires in every direction. At 10.30 p.m., the sharp clatter of a ringing telephone cut through the hotel room's anguished quiet. Captains Hastings and Judah were downstairs. La Florecita was ready. If the Jacobis wanted to get out of Manila, they couldn't wait any longer. Burning embers rained from the sky as the captain's car sped up Chaos Engulfed Dewey Boulevard to Pier 7, just next to the Manila Hotel. As soon as they arrived, the sailors and reporters ran from the vehicle to La Florecita. The small freighter's crew already had the engines turning. Flames from torched warehouses spread along the horizon. Somewhere in the distance, additional fuel reserves were sabotaged, their thunderous blasts punctuating the moment. Clark boarded La Florecita first. Mel and Annalee followed, hand in hand. They leapt aboard the boat just before it chugged into Manila Bay. Almost as soon as the ship, a 10-year-old, 364-ton cargo boat had pushed off, the dock exploded behind them dynamited by the few American soldiers lingering at the pier. Sparks fell across the deck of La Florecita as it threaded its way through the bay's hazardous waters. The reporters watched through the ensuing fire's glow as the last fleeing F Filipinos pulled whatever they could use from the warehouses of their crumbling capital. At one minute after midnight, Mel, Annalee, and Clark stood on the ship's deck, illuminated only by the moon and firelight from the city. The explosions and the cacophony of a collapsing nation had given way to the darkened waters quiet. Safety remained a long way off.
Still, Clark was optimistic. Quote, soon we'll be in the Indies, eating good food, he told his friends. The boat crept, bobbed in the middle of the bay, its bridge dark. The new year may have arrived, but there was no champagne to mark the occasion. The only thing the reporters could find to drink was a bottle of Applejack that one of the members of the crew produced. Passing the bottle around, the reporters and the ship's crew wished each other an unenthusiastic Happy New Year. We could just barely make out their faces in the reflected light from Manila's great pier area, throwing clouds of smoke and leaping flames a half mile high behind us, Mel wrote. They still didn't know where they were headed, the jungles of Corregidor, or the jungles of the Bataan Peninsula, or the fortress of Corregidor. Either choice meant threading the bay's minefields, and they knew that if they tried to escape to the open ocean, the Japanese Navy lay in wait just past the harbor's entrance. They were at the mercy of Captains Hastings and Judah. Wherever the sailors decided was safe to anchor would be their destination. So that's a little segment from the book. And I thought, since I'm here at the MacArthur Memorial, I thought um, I'd also read uh, a dispatch Mel sent from Cebu to Time Magazine, just a, at least a section of one. Uh, it'll be 75 years ago Friday. Um, and this was what he started to write on that typewriter aboard the Doña Nati. And, uh, he writes it from the perspective, he probably would have started writing this, uh, uh, he writes it from the perspective of being on Bataan and getting ready to leave Bataan. Um, and so it begins, somewhere in the Philippines. We sit by the side of a Bataan roadway, waiting. Our visions of past months of war are vivid, clouded only momentarily during this waiting by thick sheets of Bataan dust rolling off the, the road every time a car or a truck races by. We wonder for a moment when we will return and how. Will it be years hence? As a pilgrimage to an historic spot where ordinary men made themselves great? Or will it be with reinforcements finally come, braving the sea and air in tribute to MacArthur's determined stand? Past months are dreamlike. Only the people we've known now make reality. Our friends whom we left behind that New Year's Eve in Manila, knowing they would awaken in an occupied, defenseless city, great parts of which, on the same night we departed, had been burned to the ground. The doctors in Bataan we had seen working night and day at base hospitals, improvising, unflinching, while planes were overhead. The quiet, lanky boy who had been a bank clerk in California, who had walked through Japanese lines with a tank rivet in his throat and found himself a hero. The Filipino scout who, Awakening from his operation, found he had lost his leg and would be unable to fight the Japanese anymore. Turned his hurt eyes to the young blonde nurse staring down at him and said, I, I don't want to live now, Mum." Our thoughts roved to the first Manila bombing, when people just stood on the street, just watching. The tragedy of Clark Field, Cavite, the day we were spectators from a comfortable hotel window in Manila, watching squadron after squadron of Japanese bombers, uncontested, plaster the old walled city, sending the Santo Domingo church up in flames. The looks of astonishment on our Filipino chauffeur's face when he heard the army was leaving Manila in open city, and his parting words to us that his bolo would be sharpened for the day the Americans came back. Then, it is our surroundings that bring us back. The big banyan trees, that incessant dust, uh, dust screen, the sloping saddle of the Maravillas Mountains that we always watch when the cry Tojo's coming is heard, but Tojo does not bother us today. 
as we feel impregnable for the first time in this war. We're leaving Bataan. We're leaving MacArthur, the Bulkleys, Wormuths, the men on the firing lines whose exploits are yet untold, and most of all, the scared Pennsylvania soldier who ran the first time he heard Japanese fire, but who braved machine gun fire the second time to carry his officer off the field. Our thoughts are suddenly broken as an overloaded jeep bounces by us to a skidding halt, throwing a barrage of dust, and the men jump down asking for cigarettes. There's a lieutenant we know, and we pass out almost our last camels, which they light one from each other. I look closely at these men, feeling apart for the first time. I notice the deep lines war makes on their faces, the whitish, the whitish tinge the duck dust gives their hair and beards, the lack of starch in their uniform, and only their rifles and 45s, which has, have gained new value to them, show military polish. We swap the usual chit-chat in Bataan, rumors of convoys, the falls of Singapore, and what the American planes lost there could have done in Bataan. The lieutenant asked me if I heard the story about the American soldier who had been commissioned as a captain and had already won the DSC, and I had. Then it is time for them to slip back in the jeep and head for the front line, which has been quiet for the past days, leaving the men bored but unable to leave their foxholes in positions, just waiting. We're alone again, sitting, wondering among ourselves whether an ice cream soda, if we ever get out, will really taste good, and whether we'll miss taking quinine pills with each meal. Finally, it is time for us to move towards the shore, where a boat will soon be waiting. The idea of routine dive bombing on the shore does not affect us this afternoon, and we don't wait until the last moment to run for the boat. Each tree trail we pass on route seems to hold a particular memory for us, and we visit for a few minutes at an ACAC battery, exchanging news again. The men are out of humor. There have been no Japanese over them for nearly a week. They like action now. We pass the quartermaster's motor pool and wonder how they keep cars and trucks running under these conditions. There's almost a complete machine shop under the trees. A soldier drives the car in for air, which he gets from a hose hanging from a banyan tree. We keep passing these vital behind-the-lines organizations, the bakery in the jungles turning out the army's supply of bread, a cleared space where caribou mules are slaughtered by the vet corps for meat, one General Harold George's airfield, which looks like a trail through the woods, where the costly lessons of December's Clarkfield bombings is taken so seriously, waiting, waiting something to rush the precious few remaining P-40s off the field, split seconds after the wheels touch the ground. We drive through a civilian refugee camp where 7,500 homeless Filipinos live in the open and line up this time every afternoon for rice. They are there again, mothers, children, some men, all preferring Bataan's bombings and hardships to life under the Japanese New Order. The bombings a few days back, which took a score of lives, only adds to their frightened, hungry looks and makes them clutch empty tomato cans used for dishes harder as if grasping life itself. We then reach the shoreline, which breaks openly and evenly from clusters of, of coca palms. An MP passes us with a nod, says no planes up now, and asks for our last camel. Our boat is not yet in, so we stand talking to the officer with field glasses, which we borrow to look across the bay Thank you for listening.
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.